Okay, well, as we uh, come back together, we're going to pick up in uh, 1 Samuel 19, which is where we left off a couple weeks ago. Under the heading, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. I'd kind of hoped that maybe that was going to be a song in our uh, list of songs this for this coming Lord's Day, but eh, we were close. Yeah, we were close. But um, we're going to be talking about that a lot of times we forget that God is in control. Now, I have to be honest with you, as I was kind of reading through this text today, uh, verses 13 to 24 is where we're going to be, 1 Samuel 19 verses 13 to 24. As I was working through this text, I was thinking to myself, goodness gracious, what, um, what are we going to do with this? But you know, as, as I kind of began to unpack it and really kind of dissect it, begin to think about the, the principles that are in this text, it really is about God's sovereignty. Because we see in this text um, a world of deceit and violence, a world of obscurity, and yet through all of that, God's sovereignty shines through. 1 Samuel 19, uh, verses 13 to 24. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with cloths. Now, you remember, last time we were together, Saul is trying to kill David. He has basically told all of his servants, if you find David, kill him on the spot. David's wife, Michael, has told David that her father is trying to kill him. So she lets him down out of a window for him to escape. Then Saul has said, I want to see David. <laughs> so that's where we are, verse 13. So she put uh, an image, an idol, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, on the bed, and then she covered it up, verse 14. And when Saul sent mes messengers to, to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, and behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head, Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now she said, that's what David said. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah. 
and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul that he he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied, and Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. And when he, he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well at that is at uh, Seku, he asked, Where is Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also as he went, and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all day and all night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We praise you, Father, for your goodness, and for your mercy, your grace. And we just ask that as we look upon this text, that we would see that you are sovereign and that your sovereignty exists whether we see it or not. And so, Father, may we always trust that you are aware and active in the lives of your created order and that, Father, you are sovereign over all things And regardless of how difficult it may see, may we trust that sovereignty in every moment. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We glorify you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. All right, so the downgrade of worldliness is so imperceptible that we forget that God is truly in control. We have two instances here where there's deceit and lies and obscurity, and yet through all of that, God does something, I think, utterly amazing in the story of Saul and David. But before we get to that amazing part, I want us to understand that it may not be easy to see God's sovereignty in the world, in a world of deceit and violence. It may not be easy to see God's sovereignty in a world of deceit and violence. In the first... uh, Let's see here, must be five verses or so, 13 to 17. We have an awful lot of deceit and violence. <laughs> we know that, that Saul is trying to kill David, right? He's doing everything within his power to kill him. But look at the deceit that's going on here. David's wife actually deceives her father in, uh, in telling him that her husband is sick and he presumably can't come. But to further perpetrate this ruse, verse 19 tells us that she took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair by its head. Um, Most of the folks that have commented on this uh, have all concluded that the image was big enough that it could have been used to uh, represent a human figure. Now, as I was reading some of this, this is really kind of fascinating It's lost and pagan, but it's fascinating that in antiquity, what was common was that uh, wives at times would make images of their husband. And so this image, or what is sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as a house idol, 
may very well have been a graven image of David. Now, they, uh, a lot of the rabbis have given various and sundry reasons why that might be so. Everything from the husband may be gone for long periods of time and the wife would look to the image of her husband for security and reassurance all the way to the point that in some cases they might have been worshiping their husband as some sort of god or demigod. Um, It is not beyond the possibility that the image that is mentioned here was a foreign deity. Uh, Now, it is most likely a house god or some lesser deity, but it could very well be some other deity. At any rate, um, Michael is violating one of God's commandments in maintaining a graven image, even of her husband, in the house. And most of the commentors uh, said that they did not believe that David even knew she had it, that it would have been in a private chamber or somewhere uh, else uh, away from where David would even have access or go within his own house. Now remember, they're in the palace of Saul, so it's not like they're living in a one-room house, they're living in the palace. So this would have been their quarters. And so we see deceit and that she's deceiving David. In fact, that she's hiding the idols from him and she's deceiving her father in that she put one of those idols in the bed and made it look like David. We also see Michael doing a little bit of uh, embellishing here uh, when her father asks her in... um, must be verse uh, 17. Why have you deceived me? She said, well, basically David threatened me. Now, I realize that Scripture does not always record every last thing that happens in a particular narrative, but Scripture is usually pretty good about carrying, catching the big details. And we don't read anywhere in the text immediately ahead of this, David even hinting of violence against Michael for helping or not helping. And so it seems like it might have been rather convenient for her to say, instead of saying to her father, well, I love my husband and I want to help him, she lied to her father about her husband that he had threatened to kill her if she didn't help him. So do you see what's going on here? Lies and deceit. In some respect, not a lot has changed since this account to today. We live in a world full of deceit. We don't know what to believe. Um, I'm, I'm hearing those sentiments yet again about the news that you just can't really trust any of the news outlets. Some perhaps are better than others, but we all are a bit skeptical of what we're hearing in the news. Certainly, we have violence all around the world. It seems to be a little more prevalent these days. It's making the news a little bit more, but we live in a world of deceit and violence, and it is hard to see God's sovereignty in a world like that. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 19, we find the Apostle Paul giving us further insight as to the fact that it may not be easy to see, but it doesn't mean that God's sovereignty is not there. In Romans 3.10, he says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, right? Now, if I stop right there before I read verse 19, that's a pretty pitiful plight, isn't it? No, not one. Nobody is honest. Nobody is peaceable. Nobody. But in verse 19, he's 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world, the whole world may be held accountable to God. Isn't that what the law is designed to do? To show us our great infractions before the Lord, our rebellion? Is it not to drive us to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ? who brings salvation to God's people, not through works, but by grace. And so Paul points out specifically in this Romans 3 passage that all of the violence, all of the deceit, all of the no, not one is intended to be used by God to bring um, those that are his into the knowledge of the gospel. That's his larger argument. Now we he develops more fully. He develops it more fully in chapter three that we don't have time to go into tonight. But I just want to highlight here that if we stopped at verse nineteen, it would be very, very disheartening. We can't see a sovereign God because of all the things going on in the world. But Paul points out for us that those things don't change. They may hide, but they don't stop or change. God's sovereign activity in the world. That's why I love the verse, second verse of the song of which this message tonight is entitled, Praise to the Lord above all things so wondrously reigning, sheltering you under his wings and so greatly sustaining. Have you not seen all that is needful has been sent by his gracious ordaining? It doesn't matter whether we can't see it or not. It doesn't change the fact that it's not real. God's sovereignty is very real, and it is sustaining. Which brings me to the second thought tonight. It may not be easy to see God's sovereignty in seasons of obscurity. It may not be easy to see God's sovereignty in seasons of obscurity. Back to 1 Samuel 19, <coughs> excuse me, verse 18. The scene shifts from Michael uh, interacting with Saul, her father, to David, where David went and what David did. Verse 18 tells us, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel in Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth, and it was told Saul, David is at Nioth in Ramah. It's interesting, if you do a little bit of searching for this word nioth or naoth, you're going to have trouble finding it. You're going to have trouble finding a definition on it. 
As a matter of fact, I believe, if I understood correctly, that this is the only text in which the word naoth appears in the Old Testament. They don't really know, uh, archaeologists and scholars don't really know if it was a place in terms of a town or a village or whether it was a place like a temple or a school. They're undecided. And some of them are just hedging their bet saying it was a temple or a school at a village. Okay, But the point is, is that it wasn't apparently a very well-known or well-traveled place. It does appear that Samuel had established some sort of order, whether it was students learning or, or prophets ministering or priests ministering. Samuel had established this gathering of what we might call holy men or priests at Naoth, and their main function, now, and this will come more clear in a moment, was to praise God, okay? But this was not a place that was just, you know, on every map. You, you couldn't just go on Expedia and find hotel rooms abounding at Naoth. It just wasn't that kind of place. And so David flees there from the wrath of Saul and he fl- and, and I believe that Samuel took him here because it was an out-of-the-way place that would make it a little easier for David to hide. And what better place to hide him than in the middle of a bunch of priests? Uh, it is fascinating. There was a bit of a discussion among one of the commentors uh, that uh, Saul seemed to think that Michael was going to hide David in her harem. Apparently, the harems, the royal harems, were places that even the king was not allowed to go without some degree of permission. And so the thought was is that Michael was hiding David in the royal harem, which would have made it difficult for anybody to go in and find out where he was unless they just abandoned protocol. But you see, David didn't hide where Michael and Saul thought that he was. He went to Samuel, and Samuel hid him, probably in a place that is more in keeping with who David was and what his call was. But it was obscure. It was not, it it was off the beaten path. And then those seasons when we feel like we're on the backside of Midian, you all remember that about Moses? Spent four year, 40 years on the backside of Midian, out there in the middle of nowhere, uh, shepherding goats. Then we go through seasons like that where it just doesn't feel like um, we're really where we ought to be. Um, and so God is still sovereign during those seasons of time. God is still sovereign when we feel like we are in obscurity. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, give us a really good example of what it means to live in obscurity. I'll read the text and then give comment here afterwards. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation 
to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is highlighting the advent, the first advent of the Lord Jesus, as Philippians 2 says, he uh, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself. The kenosis. He took on human form, and he came and he lived among us, fallen, broken humanity. And he was subject to the same temptations and difficulties and sufferings and abuses and inconveniences and uncomforts as the rest of us are, yet he was not without sin. He was without sin. He did not sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is making the point that he, he learned obedience through what he suffered, not just his suffering on the cross, but I think the writer of Hebrews is actually talking about his advent, his life as a human being. Now, I want us to think about that for just a second. The Lord Jesus, who was equal with God in quality, nature, and essence, not positionally, there's a hierarchy within the Godhead, but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share the same essence. Three persons, one essence. They share the same thoughts. They share the same volitional will. They share everything in common, and yet the Lord Jesus in his advent set that deity aside, that oneness in terms of that that immediate oneness among the Godhead. He set that aside And he lived through 33 years of obscurity (laughs) in a far out-of-the-way place on the backside of creation. And yet, the writer of Hebrews highlights that advent and the prayers and the supplications and the being saved from death and the reverence and the obedience and the being made perfect. He highlights all that as being necessary to fulfill the perfect decree that God, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had determined before space and time to save the elect. So even though the Lord Jesus was living in a season of obscurity, you might say an entire life of obscurity, God was still sovereign, and he was fulfilling God's sovereign will. So... What we must do when we are in those seasons of obscurity is fulfill God's will for us in that season of obscurity, knowing that we have an example, knowing that we have someone that we can pattern our life after, and that is the Lord Jesus, which is the reason why I've chosen the third verse of our song to go along with this particular point. Verse 3, praise to the Lord the Almighty, says, Praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends you. Right? It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what God thinks. Which brings me to the third thing. Now, we've talked about it's not easy to see God's sovereignty in a world of deceit and violence. It is not easy to see God's sovereignty in seasons of obscurity. But it is easy to see God's sovereignty in the praises of him. The praises of him. Back to 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. 
we see in 20 to 24 that Saul sends messengers to Naoth to collect David. He's going to go down there, just pick him up, collect him, bring him back to Jerusalem and where he can kill him. And so when the messengers go down to collect David, they get to Naoth and they see all these prophets, these priests, Samuel's out there with them. Now the text says prophesying. But the Hebrew word that is used here is almost universally accepted by the commentors to be praise. They're praising him. They're praising God. They're worshiping him. They're they're basically having a worship service. And so that is where we see God's sovereignty the, the clearest, in the worship service where God's people are praising God. And so that was so important to the narrative that Saul sent a second group and a third group of people to collect David, and all of the people he sent did the same thing. They wound up praising God. Now, it says that the Spirit of God moved upon them and the messengers of Saul, and they also praised or prophesied. Three times this happened, and then Saul goes and says, well, don't send a boy to do a man's job, and what happens to Saul? He gets down there. He starts praising God too. This is a divine intervention on God's part in which he causes all of those that were sent to collect David to praise God himself. And we see God's sovereign activity in the fact that he caused those men to praise him and he protected David through the praise of the living God. I was listening to a podcast this week that was saying, the the speaker was saying that worship is the very center of, he was using the word community. He was talking about building strong, healthy Christian communities. And his, his main first premise was that a strong community is built around worship, the proper worship of God. A lot of, we have a lot of weak communities because we are all about worship, but we're not worshiping correctly. We're not praising God, we're praising ourselves. We're praising the denomination, we're praising the preacher, we're praising some aberrant theology, whatever. If we are going to see the sovereign hand of God move, we must be devoted to worship, proper worship of a holy God. That's why I chose praise to the Lord, the Almighty, as a theme that predominates our time tonight. That's what Samuel and the guys at Naoth were doing. That's what the Spirit of God moved upon Saul and his men when they went to carry out a plan contrary to the will of God. Because, you know, David was supposed to be king. David had been, David had been anointed, anointed king, right? Y'all remember that? David has been anointed king. Saul was trying to thwart that by killing David, and so God moves in a sovereign way to bring all of those involved in this episode to praise. As a matter of fact, just statistically, 13 to 24 is nine verses, or excuse me, 11 verses. That's 11 verses, of which five of those 11 verses is dedicated to praise. Now, I don't make doctrines based on statistics, but it does seem kind of interesting to me that the thing that is talked about most in this particular narrative is praise, praising God. 
the sovereignty of God is best seen, most clearly seen, most easiest seen in the praise of him. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It's a text we all know. It's the Lord Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 21, the Lord Jesus says, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, will I, on that day many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy praise in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about the ritual. It's not about how the, the tradition or how we might go about doing something. It's about whether we're praising God or not. It is whether, it's about whether we worship the living God. It is about whether we are praised to the Lord, the Almighty. If we desire to see God's sovereign hand, I believe, based on this text, the thing that we have to get squared away first is praise. Praise to the Lord, O let all that is in me adore him. All that has life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the amen sound from his people again, gladly forever adore him. Tonight, as we reflect upon this, my prayer, my heart, my hope is that we would look through the deceit and violence of the world. We would look through whatever season of obscurity we might be experiencing and that we would praise God with all that is within us, that we would adore him and worship him and exalt him and lift him up that he would draw all men into himself and that we would see his sovereignty at work. May we do that by the grace of God. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We praise you, Father, for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace. And we just simply ask that as we reflect upon all that you've shown us, that, Lord, we truly would give praise to you, the Lord Almighty and that we would know and see and understand that you are sovereign over all things, and that though there is violence and deceit in the world, and a lot of it, and that there are seasons of obscurity where we can't see things very clearly, may we always resolve to praise you in the midst of all of that and see your sovereign hand at work. We thank you, Father, for these truths. We praise you for your goodness to us and giving them to us. And we ask, Father, for your grace that we might go out from here and live inside the truth that you've shown us tonight, that we might honor you and glorify you and be used of you as salt and light in the world. We love you, Father. We praise you. We thank you. And we ask these things in your precious and holy name. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. Well, Lord willing, we'll see you guys next week.